Yeah, that's not going in the recording. So whatever you're thinking it might have been, it's probably that. <laughs> or it's not that, but it's definitely that. And you with the curly hair, that's distinctly accurate, and I'm a little worried you were nearby when we were recording. Because that's very close. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm Rhiannon. I'm Mitch. Uh, this is... They did what? They did what? <laughs> They did what? They did what? Sorry, you did what? <laughs> they did what? I don't know where that was from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, today we're um <clears throat> we're staying in the the equivalent of what at least I and many other curriculums would refer to as modern history. Yes, I think so. Yeah, we went from mm. emu war to <laughs> World War Two. Mm. It's modern enough. Um, but it's a, it's a story that's near and dear to my heart, which sounds strange once you hear what the story is, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because it was my grandfather's favorite story to tell. So I'm just going to say distinction wise, moving forward, this grandfather we refer to as Pa. Grandpa was the other grandfather, not the greatest person in the world. Pa, my mother's father, was the man. <laughs> he was the one who told us jokes that no one in our, in Australia would get because they weren't born at the same time as him, but they were still funny. This was the man <laughs> who taught me how to build my first bow out of sticks that we found in his backyard. Okay, that's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the man who then was like, right, these are the things you have to do to be a good person. These are the things you do to be a good man. And if those don't work for being a good man, it's because the world has moved on and I'm unsure of what it is to be a good man anymore don't take me as gospel so it kind of you know it, it's got a near and dear place to my heart because it's part of all of the parts of growing up with my pa and seeing my pa <clears throat> it's his favorite story from world war ii now he was a child at the time he didn't serve he was a child he was living under heavy rationing so ration card with a yeah. set number of like punch out pieces you could use them for we had more extensive rationing many australians argue than the british did than the germans or the french did especially way heavier than the americans did mm, the I americans don't... were rolling in money in comparison to us yeah i yeah i don't know i actually have never thought to ask my grandparents because they were living in yorkshire during the war mm. um i know my grandmother in scotland like had a pretty hard time of it yes and she was like hiding under the stairs during some things <laughs> yeah yeah um but my so my grandfather must be older than yours because he served in world war ii De definitely older than mine <laughs> uh my grandfather was uh, would have now been 84 yeah. so i i don't younger. know how old my he passed away when my mum was 14 so i have right. no clue but he was 12 <laughs> years older than my grandmother right who was a teenager during the war okay well, there you go. See, my mm. grandmother and my... All of my grandparents were children or sub-teen yep. during World War II. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> not, not to be confused by the fact that my nan, my one living grandparent, her father served in World War One. It wasn't until I did the family history that I found out he was one of the Australians who signed up at the age of 14. Mm. But because he'd been working on the docks from the age of 12... 
he looked like an 18-year-old because puberty hit him like a truck. Oh. <laughs> and lifting crates and barrels mm. in the 13, in 1913 and 1914, he bulked out, yeah. went off to war, came home, became the uh, head of the Masonic Lodge for New South Wales, which is Ooh. possibly a different story somewhere <laughs> down the line. <laughs> I always wanted to be a Mason because I just love the idea of like being part of a secret society and then I was like oh I'm a woman okay <laughs> fine oh, you also have to kind of believe in Jesus yeah I'm oh, out too oh yeah okay <laughs> I mean I know he was a real person yeah, yeah. <laughs> all seven of them that existed at the same time across the Roman Empire but <laughs> we might get into that when we, we talk will, about Pompeii <laughs> we will definitely get into Jesus multiple times um, sorry just like to... <laughs> his disciples probably did based on the number of uh, men who hung out with prostitutes at that time in the Middle East Mm, I do love that the um the story about is it John? Yes, John being Mary Magdalene's younger brother and Jesus actually having a relationship with him. And this really ties into 1942 <laughs> in Australia quite well. Mm. You you might have noticed by now we're three episodes in and we do like to ramble and we do like to talk about stuff, but that's what happens when a historian and an archaeologist mm. sit down who've been friends for half a decade or more and are like, let's tell stories. Yes. And uh, Mitch has been like a real historian. He has his wine. I am being a bad archaeology person here by uh, not having a drink. I'm actually being a bad historian by only having a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> when I was at university, it was very much argued that uh, for second place, out of which of the degrees drank the most, mm. because everyone agreed that it was the historians. Mm. Because our job is to look at human history, remember it, mm. and then have to tell people about it and be ignored. Over yep. and over and over again. I mean, I've seen plenty of articles from historians talking about Hmm, the fall of the Roman Empire. The American Empire. Similarities? Ooh. <laughs> oh, what happened in the 1920s, the 1820s, the 1720s, the 1620s, <laughs> the 1520s, the 1420s? Ah, <laughs> mm. oh, but hey. We keep the, uh, the wine, whiskey, gin, tequila, and vodka industries running. Yes. Almost single-handedly in some parts of the world. I know. My poor boyfriend takes the night off work and I'm like, can I have a martini? And he's like, I've just bartended four days in a row. <laughs> I'm like, yes. But I have to think about the world. <laughs> I've remembered what people have done. Mm. Do you? Yes. <laughs> you help people forget. I help them remember. And which one is better? I don't know. The one that gets a martini, not the one that makes a martini. <laughs> Now, back to our actual story for the episode. <clears throat> the story takes place in 1942. The Americans are stationed in Australia for R&R. They're coming down here for hospital work because just north of Australia is Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea has been overrun by the Japanese. We're at war. Australian soldiers are heading to the front in trains, while American soldiers in their dress uniforms are coming south to Brisbane, in Queensland, where they're having a really good time of it. They're getting paid a significant amount more than we are, Australian soldiers who are militia, not conscripts. Mm -hmm. They're militia. They're technically not supposed to be serving anywhere other than Australian soil. Really? But in the 1940s, Papua New Guinea and some of the islands to our north were part of the Australian protectorate mm -hmm. and were considered Australian soil. 
some militia that never thought they'd have to leave Australian borders is going north to Papua New Guinea and fighting in places like the Kokoda Trail in jungle warfare Mm -hmm. against an entrenched Japanese that have significant air power, have naval units coming in, and Australia, a much smaller population, a much less militaristic nature Mm -hmm. when it comes to how much stuff we had built up. Um, We invented six out of the last nine guns that have been distributed (laughs) amongst Australian soldiers. So we know what we're doing. We just can't kill emus and we don't like fighting outside our own borders. (laughs) (laughs) They're going up. And the story is that in November of 1942, one of the trains up and one of the trains down meet at a siding in Queensland. The train heading up are Australian militia, chocolate soldiers. Chocolate soldiers. They're called that because the regular infantry and the American High Command, who was in charge of Australia's soldiers, we were being commanded by Americans. (laughs) So the Second World War, and we've got the second foreign nation leading us into battle, Mm -hmm. not our own. Yeah. Then they let us off the hook, and we absolutely kicked everyone's teeth in. But that's another story entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Rats of Tobruk for the win. (laughs) Chocolate soldiers are heading to the front. Militia called that because they would melt like chocolate in the Australian sun in the sight of the enemy. What? Has nothing to do with what they looked like, but they'd melt like chocolate. That was it. That was the insult. And to be completely honest, Australian militia hated it. It pissed them off. I can feel your nationalism coming through here as your (laughs) accent just appears. You're just like, how dare they? (laughs) Oh, Yes, the accent is going to get heavier and heavier (laughs) as we go on. Because there's going to be some stuff about this story that really gets my goat that Mm. people got away with. Okay. The story as it's told by Australian servicemen, by people from the time, by my pa, and by four different people that I've met from the United States who've served in the Marines, Air Force, Infantry, and Navy, who all know this story, (laughs) is militia going north, American soldiers on R&R shore leave in their dress uniforms coming south. Now, Australian uniforms don't look great today. (laughs) It's different versions of green on green or blue with white piping or you're in the Air Force and we can't see you from the ground. (laughs) Our uniforms were not great in World War I. They weren't great in World War II. In Vietnam, we figured out camouflage and the Americans ignored us. We saw how that went. (laughs) The Americans are in their flashy uniforms, polished buttons. They're paid more than us. And as the story goes, an American leans his head out of the window and sings across to the Australians heading for the front. Don't worry, Aussies. We'll look after your girls. Mm, Yeah, that's that's always going to go well. The story continues that two Australian officers got off the train. One went to the engine of their train and one went to the engine of the train with the Americans in it. Both conductors were told to put on the emergency brakes and not turn the engine back on. While the Australians disembarked from their train, put their weapons on the ground, 
and armed with only their fists, waded into the Americans, making sure that every single one of them on that train south had to go to a hospital by the time they got to Brisbane. There was not a single one of them that was going to be looking after your girls, Aussies. No. And then we picked up our weapons and went north. <laughs> and the Australians continued to fight in the Kokoda campaign, doing more than the Americans did, with none of the acclaim. Of course. That's the story as it's told. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it's actually two stories that have been smashed together. Okay. Because both stories were heavily censored by the War Bureau. Mm. One is the late November Battle of Brisbane. The other is the early November, two weeks before this, train shootout near Brisbane. I'm sorry, these both sound crazier than the story you just told me. Yes, and that's what's so insane. <laughs> The first one, the one that happens chronologically first, mm -hmm. is the train fight. So on the 12th of November, an American serviceman, his name, because I am making sure everyone whose name is recorded in the military, chronicles, uh, court records and everything is said fully in this. Mm -hmm. Corporal Frederick Theodore Simmons of the United States was arrested for starting a brawl in Queensland. Mm -hmm. He was released on bail and skipped town. Headed for a train yard, trying to find a train that would take him north to Townsville so that he could get onto a troop ship out of Queensland, away from court proceedings. He was more willing to go to the front than he was to stay and face American military police. Wow. That should tell you a lot to start with. Yep. He gets to the train yard and an Australian ammunition train is there being loaded. Mm -hmm. He gets to talking with some of the Australian guards who are stationed for the train. They sit down, they have a few drinks because Australians had something other than water in their canteens every now and then. <laughs> Shared sandwiches. Some of them took a bit of a sleep while Corporal Simmons stayed awake. Mm. He was offered a berth on the train up to Townsville. If he would help be one of the guards, he said yes. A few hours later, one of the Australian guards wakes up to find his service pistol missing. And Simmons is nowhere to be seen. Guards along the train are notified to this fact, and they find Simmons in one of the ammunition cars going through boxes of ammunition, heading to the front. What the fuck? Exactly. At this point, the Australians are trying to keep a level head and just going, mate, no, no, step away. It's not for you. We've got more sandwiches down in the other car. Come <laughs> on. Simmons produces his stolen revolver and shoots the Australian guard in the head. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. In an ammunition car full of grenades, artillery pieces, bullets, other munitions, and weapons heading to the front, Simmons, with a stolen weapon, shoots the guard in the head. As this shot rings out, a train headed north and a train headed south 
arrive at the same juncture point. The train headed south has 30 injured American soldiers being sent down to Brisbane from where they have been serving on the Papua New Guinean front. The train heading north has a half battalion of Australian militia heading up to Townsville to ship out to Papua New Guinea. How much is a battalion? We're looking at a, like a couple hundred, really. Okay. In the grand scheme of what a battalion is. So but because it's wartime and it's militia, mm. a half battalion can run anywhere from 50 to about 200 men. Okay. It can be more, it can be less. It's weird. <laughs> you've got, because you've got uh, things that on paper say half battalion, mm. but what actually goes up is five men. Or you've got like three squads, but 600 men are sent up. Right. It's this weird point in records keeping where stuff just gets missed and stuff isn't being written down right because someone's writing down a civilian report, someone's writing down a military report. It doesn't all work out. Armed Australian soldiers arrive at the siding. So the three trains are the train with Simmons carrying ammunition for the front, a train full of soldiers heading to the front, and a train full of Americans heading south. And they're all already injured. Mm -hmm. One of the guards from the ammunition train pokes his head into the Australian train and asks them to halt all of the trains because he's not a high-ranking up officer to be able to command that. So the train's getting stopped. That actually happens. Mm -hmm. There's actually a train of Australians. There's actually a train of Americans. Simmons is what's removed by the censors. Right. As he's telling them, please stop the trains, he also asks, does anyone have a weapon? Because the MPs, military police, that are taking this train up, only the officers have pistols. Australian military police weren't even allowed to go armed in public unless they were on military bases. No baton, no pistol, and they're seen as the dirt beneath even the militia's feet. MPs, not well liked in Australia. The other Australian soldiers are like, ah, uh, yeah, we're all armed. <laughs> Why? And the quote is, a Yank has just shot one of us. Six soldiers disembark the train and start heading down looking for Simmons. Simmons leans out of the train that he's in, firing off wildly from his pistol, and two Australians return fire, one with his service rifle and the other with a forty-five handgun. Simmons is hit multiple times. Mm -hmm. It is impossible to figure out which of the two fatal shots killed him, although one fatal shot was from a service rifle and one fatal shot was from a forty-five. <laughs> so both men who opened fire hit him enough times and hit him lethally that Simmons was put down. If only they'd hired these two guys for the Emu War. <laughs> I think they were a bit young for the Emu War. <laughs> they'd probably only just come of age. The thing is, this was so heavily censored that it blew out of proportion. Oh, there was a shootout between two trains of Australians and Americans and all the Americans came into Brisbane wounded. Right. The numbers stayed low for about two weeks of this story circulating. 
Then the Battle of Brisbane, also known as the Brisbane Brawl, Mm -hmm. happens. And this is where we see the Americans taking a, um, oh, how best to describe it? Same approach would be the opposite of how we would describe it to a unarmed mob. (laughs) Um, So, you know, timing wise, this is a great thing to talk about based on everything (laughs) we've seen in the last however many Mm. months. Oh, the um, the Brisbane brawl was really the boiling point mm-hmm. started by the train shooting. The Brisbane the people in Brisbane knew about the shooting in the train yard. Yeah, they'd been dealing with Americans being billeted with Australian families in Australian buildings, drinking in Australian pubs, spending American currency, but not knowing how Australian money worked. Ah, uh, typical Americans. Hi, I'm in Canada. Here's my American money. Yeah. There is a, a direct quote from one serviceman, which was, "We didn't understand the money enough, so we handed over America. So we would take change out of our pockets and tell them to take what was necessary." <laughs> American soldiers stationed in the UK figured out how the money worked. You know, yeah, we, we were had... using the <laughs> same currency standard about, yeah. at the time. We didn't change to the Australian dollar till the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. We were still we were still using the Australian pound, but it was pounds, shilling, bob, pence, tuppence, mm. the whole thing. This is where a lot of the tension starts, because the U.S. rate of pay was eleven forty per week U.S. dollars in nineteen forty two, plus an allowance, the cost of living, no taxes or extremely low ones. So they got their entire paycheck and the equivalent of a civilian income of the time of almost 70 US dollars a week. That's a significant amount more today, but even if you just take it in comparison to the Australian, it's ludicrously high (laughs) because that's for an unmarried American private. The lowest rank with no dependents, nothing. That's their minimum wage in 1942 as a soldier. Damn. An unmarried Australian private received $3.50 per week US. <laughs> the equivalent of a civilian income of $18.70 per week. We were under rationing. Hmm. Pubs closed 10 minutes before 7 on every night of the week. The Australians could not buy hard liquor because it was only on the black market and it cost their weekly wage. Mm. The Americans show up earning three times as much in fancy uniforms with foreign accents and able to take Australian men and women on dates, do whatever they want, with no actual dent in their personal income. Mm. On top of that, American military police were allowed to go armed in Australia, off base. Okay. Australian military police are not allowed to be armed outside a theatre of war at this time. So they're unarmed. Trying to corral drunken (laughs) Australian soldiers during World War II to go home, go back to base. God, that'd be a shit job. America, and and they are considered a shit mm. job. It's not seen as like, 
a reward as it was for Americans in the 40s. It's seen as, oh, you're a broken soldier. You don't know how to fight. You don't know what to do. All you can do is stand around and be angry at people for trying to do their job. Mm. Then there's the fact that the Americans are in control. They're telling us where to fight, how to fight, what to do. Every time we win, it's an allied victory. Every time the Americans mess something up in Papua New Guinea, it's because Australians weren't supporting them well enough. Australian diggers were referred to as not having enough get up and go or desire to win the war. This is the melting pot that we find ourselves in in late November 1942. I mean, look, I'd be ready to hit a man too. (laughs) (laughs) The best part is it's not even just us getting angry. It's Australians sticking up for a mate Hmm. who's not Australian that kicks off the brawl. Sounds Australian. At 6.50, Private James R. Stein of the U.S. 404th Signal Company was being arrested because he could not get his leave papers out of his jacket fast enough by military police Private Anthony E. O'Sullivan. 814th MPs. Because the Australians he was talking to kept taking his attention away from what he was doing. Mm. The Australians then told the MP where he could shove his baton (laughs) to leave their mate alone and to go back from where he'd come. Whether that meant America or the military base, we don't know. We can all assume that O'Sullivan was definitely not a soldier of colour. It's just American, get out of my face. Yeah. You're annoying me, I'm talking to my friend. Get lost. O'Sullivan then raised his baton to strike the last Australian who spoke to him. And things kicked off. The three Australians then launched into fisticuffs with O'Sullivan. Do you mean they punched or they actually got like some... Look, look, punched. Bare knuckle. Okay. No weapons. O'Sullivan is the only one armed. The Australians are laying into him with bare fists. Other American MPs start running in with batons and whistles. Laying into the Australians. Yeah. Now it's the height of tension. So every Tom, Dick and Harry on the street, whether they're in uniform or in civilian clothes, looks over and goes, I can hit an American today? (laughs) Yes, please. And the brawl escalates. Members of the public, other Australian soldiers who were coming out of pubs because it was about to be power out for a certain period of the night so the Japanese couldn't bomb, Mm -hmm. were also heading home. The numbers start to swell and swell. It gets to a point where the violence between Australians and Americans is escalating so quickly that a detachment of militia is told to fix bayonets and escort women out of the area so that they won't be struck by the American MPs. 
As far as we know from all of the records, not a single Australian civilian or enlisted person raised, ha raised hands against a woman, mm -hmm. but there are multiple records of, a of Americans, whether they are MPs or enlisted men, striking Australian women during the brawl. Okay. So it's already not great. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> then it just goes off the rails once everyone feels like the delicate women are out of the way. <laughs> Brisbane police arrive. Brisbane firefighters arrive. And the Australian MPs arrive. The Brisbane police respond to the American authorities with... What do you want us to do? <laughs> Those are soldiers. Some of them are armed. Fair call. The Australian MPs go, you're not my boss. <laughs> Take off their armbands and join in the fray. <laughs> and Brisbane firefighters... Please tell me they just got right in there. ...are told to bring out their hoses and hose down the crowd so they disperse. The Brisbane firefighters' response is, Ah, but mate, it's November. We're heading into the dry season and we've only got so much water we can work with. That's, that's important. And if there's a fire from a bombing and we've wasted the water on the fact that there's a fracas in the street, <laughs> we're going to get fired. You're going to get fired. It's going to be much worse than this is. <laughs> and they stay out of it and simply stand side by side with the Brisbane police watching the fight. The best part is that by 8pm, one hour and ten minutes after this fight had started, there were recorded 5,000 American and Australian civilian and military personnel taking part in the brawl. Sorry, how many? 5,000 in 70 minutes in 1942. In Brisbane. In Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. Then, the Americans go, well, this is indefensible to stay on the street. We're going to have to fall back to one of the buildings that we currently use as a headquarters. Right. And they do. It's across the street from the American Red Cross. It's an easily found location. The crowd surrounds the American building. Mm -hmm. And one enterprising officer in the U.S. Army goes, Well, they're laying siege to us, so we need to fight fire with fire. Every single military police officer who is in the American building is armed with a shotgun. For an unarmed crowd. Bloody hell. The Americans step out of the building to push the Australian crowd back. And the Australian's first response is, I'm sorry, no, batons was bad, shotguns is bloody worse, put them away. Gunner Edward S. Webster, a driver for the 2 and 2nd Australian Anti-Tank Regiment, grabs a shotgun from one of the Americans, yelling at him to put the gun down. There are civilians. Don't escalate. Mm. An American serviceman in the crowd grabs him in a chokehold from behind. And this is how it's recorded 
in the court-martial of the military police officer who held the shotgun. The shotgun was accidentally discharged three times. Oh, yes, accidentally. These are pump-action shotguns. You mm. have to pump the action to load another round between each shot. I don't like where this is going because I feel like what you're saying is he is not going to get charged for this. Gunner Edward S. Webster is killed instantly with a point-blank shot from a shotgun to the chest. The next two shots injure Private Kenneth Henkel in the cheek and forearm, Private Ian Teeman in the chest, Private Frank Corey in the thigh, Sapper DeVoso in the thigh, and Lance Corporal Richard Ledson in the left thigh and left hand, and a compound fracture of the left ankle when an American soldier stamped on it while he was trying to crawl away. Two civilians are also hit. Did they? Joseph Hanlon is wounded, and 18-year-old Walter Maidment is also wounded. Not recorded where. The soldier responsible is brought up after the war on manslaughter charges. Yeah. And is acquitted and found not guilty for using equal or lesser force when his life is in danger. <laughs> Three shotgun blasts into a crowd and he's acquitted of using lethal force. It's disgusting. Two of the people shot are crippled for life and are not able to continue taking part in the military and one goes on the dole for the rest of their life before committing suicide because of their injuries. By 10 p.m., the crowds had left. Australians didn't want to see their fellow Australians getting hurt anymore. They were going to wait. They were going to bide their time. Eight people suffered gunshot wounds. One Australian died. And several hundred Australian and American soldiers were hospitalized with injuries. So, 700? Several hundred. Not seven. Several. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. We went back for more the next night. Oh, good. Did we get the guy? No, we didn't, did we? We did not. No, he was protected and shipped out. Ugh. The next night, between five and six hundred Australian servicemen showed up in ranks in the same area. Mm-hmm unarmed. Mm -hmm. The Americans came to the windows with machine guns, rifles, and shotguns, just in case. And the Australians... You're in Australia, you don't have the right to bear <laughs> arms right now. <laughs> the Australians were making a very big show of the fact that they did not have clubs, rifles, guns of any kind. Just as things were about to kick off, a non-commissioned officer in the Australian Army came through and confiscated from the Australians over two dozen hand grenades. <laughs> we got the message from the Americans that we're supposed to escalate. <laughs> we hit, they tried to hit us with a club, we punched them with fists. They brought in clubs, we brought in more. They brought out shotguns, we calmed down, 
and with level, cool heads, armed ourselves with hand grenades and stood in the street waiting for them to make the first move so that it would be reasonable retaliation. Mm. (laughs) Elsewhere in the city, a group of Australian soldiers with batons they had stolen from American military police were scouring the streets to make sure Americans were staying indoors and off the streets that night. A group of 20 military police, some of whom had had their batons stolen from them the (laughs) night before, created a firing line across the street and raised rifles and pistols against the Australian crowd. In a very tense standoff, the Australian officer with the group was able to convince the Americans you don't have enough bullets for all of us, and we will tear you apart if you open fire. Maybe you should go home. Mm. No shots were fired. More fist fights picked up. Everything eventually, with the rising of the sun, eased off. And the Battle of Brisbane was over. The best part is, a war correspondent who was staying in a hotel nearby was quoted as saying, The most furious battle I ever saw during the war was that night in Brisbane. Mm. He was deployed to Europe and to the Pacific, watched everything that happened there, and still thought that bare-knuckle brawling between Americans and Australians that the Americans had to resort to shotguns to end was the most brutal fighting he had seen. But, because we're Australians, and because of the concept of mateship... Mm. This is how one American quoted the day after the two days of fighting. After that, it sort of settled down. And you'd go into a pub, and an Aussie would come over and slap me on the back and say, Ah, wasn't that a good ruckus we had the other night? (laughs) Have a beer on me. (laughs) And that was the end of the battle. We punched a few Americans in the face until we felt better about ourselves, and then we ordered them a beer. What the fuck? These are the two (laughs) stories that get pushed together Mm. that make it so that trainloads of Americans and trainloads of Australians got into a huge brawl. The Americans started it, which they did in both cases, (laughs) I will point out. The Battle of Brisbane was not reported in America. Their censors were able to stop it being told at all in America. It is not part of American history when talking about Americans in Australia. Right after this was when many Americans were issued with the How to Be in Australia handbook for the American GI, which included cultural differences, differences in diet, and a seven and a half page long glossary of Australian slang terms that had at other times caused minor brawls between Australians and Americans before. <laughs> Bet you wouldn't find any fair shake of the sauce bottle in that book. No, because that mm. one comes a little bit later. <laughs> but it does have uh, Gigi as a racehorse, which always reminded me of my pa's favourite joke and riddle, which was, how do you spell hungry horse in four letters? M-T-G-G. Because a Gigi was a racehorse in Australian ochre. I have not heard that. Because it's old ochre. <laughs> it's World War Two and prior ochre. 
it stops being a thing after that. They do point out how obsessed we are with horse racing in it. That's fair. And there's a small portion of the handbook that says that if there are two Australians at a bar and there's nothing else to do, they will bet on anything including how fast a droplet of rain will hit the bottom of a window pane or which fly will leave the bar first. If you've been in an Australian bar and seen the poker machines, the Kino, and the number of sports bet commercials mm. that are on television, we really haven't gone that much further <laughs> since then. Um, but we're more than happy to still punch an American in the face if they deserve it. Yes, yes. Yeah, so those are the two stories that led to the much nicer, much cleaner mm. train going up, train coming down. In reality murderer and a train going up and a train going down then don't hit my friend riot murderer more rioting okay we get it hand grenades was a little bit too far (laughs) (laughs) and if that's not the lesson for today everybody (laughs) this is one of my favorite things like looking at the stuff that happened in world war one and world war two that the censors didn't want people to know about at the time Mm. But that make you sort of look at and go, how did we win (laughs) when we were as busy fighting our allies as we were fighting the enemy? Mm. And I've uh, calmed myself down a little bit. (laughs) That's why I needed to have this episode with a glass of wine, because you could hear it from Rhiannon's reactions as well. That's uh, not a well-known story in Australia, and probably for good reason, because America is supposed to be our ally. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I, I never learned that at school. Nope. Pretty sure I learned a bit about how America saved us. In, uh... And that's because that's the history of the war written by MacArthur from his desk as he sent Australian soldiers to die on the Kokoda track while American soldiers sipped booze in Brisbane. <sighs> Don't you just fucking love propaganda? Hey. We've had it since Greece. <laughs> we'll probably talk about Grecian and Roman propaganda at some point. Oh, definitely. But I figured we'd get a few stories we're passionate about <laughs> out of the way and and sort of move on to things. Um, where are we going next? Where are we going next? Oh, that's right. We're going way back. Not like really, really far back. Just to ancient Rome and to a very well-known figure called Julius Caesar. And the invention of the salad, if I'm correct. (laughs) Mitch. (laughs) Come on. We all know any salad can be a Caesar salad if you stab it enough times. Mm, That's fair. That is fair. All right, everyone. We'll uh, we'll try and rein in the bogan for next time. (laughs) Yes, yes. No bogans in Rome. We swear, we swear. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.